Good morning. If you've been to Yellowstone National Park, you know that it's huge. And you, it's hard to get around to see everything unless you were maybe there for a week at a time. One of the places that almost everyone goes to there is a place where they have actually built a restaurant and an inn to accommodate all the crowds. When you get to that place, it's a place where there's a geyser. It's not the biggest geyser in Yellowstone National Park, but it's the one you can count on. Because about every 65 minutes, it will shoot up a stream of boiling water as high as 170 feet into the air. And it has earned the nickname Old Faithful. If you're here today as a Christian, that's a characteristic that ought to mark your life. People ought to be nicknaming you Old Faithful. You ought to be someone that others can count on. And that is the seventh characteristic in the fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness. Now, what is faithfulness? Let me give you a simple definition. Faithfulness is consistently doing your duty until your duty is done. Faithfulness is doing what you ought to be doing until you're done doing what you ought to be doing. That's faithfulness. Let me give you a trivia question. When's the last time we had no legally sworn-in president of the United States? Come on, college students. The answer is January of 2008. Our U.S. Constitution mandates that the oath of the office of president should be, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States. At President Obama's inauguration on January 20th, he placed his hand on the same Bible that Lincoln used for his oath of office, and he prepared to repeat the oath, but Chief Justice Roberts made a mistake when administering the oath. He led President Obama to say, I do solemnly swear that I will execute the office of the President of the United States faithfully. You say, what's the big deal? Well, it was a big deal to the Justice Department because they said unless the oath was repeated exactly as it appears in the Constitution, it was not binding. And so about 32 hours later, on January 21st, in a private ceremony in the White House, President Obama put the word faithfully in the right place. This morning... I want us to examine our lives and see if the word faithfully is in the right place. To see if in our responsibilities, in our roles, in our obligations, we are doing our duty until our duty is done. Frederick Nietzsche the 19th century German philosopher is best known for starting the God is Dead movement. Nietzsche died in 1900. 
maybe you've seen the comic strip commentary that has the sign, God is dead, Nietzsche, 1883, followed by another sign that says, Nietzsche is dead, 1900, God. But Nietzsche is also known for another quote, which is far more helpful. In one of his books, he said this, quote, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. And I would suggest to you this morning that that is the heart of faithfulness. A long obedience in the same direction. It's consistently doing your duty until your duty is done. Faithfulness is not just doing the right thing once. It's doing the right thing over and over again, day after day, week after week, year after year, until people say, he's old faithful. She's old faithful. Now to be faithful, you don't have to have a lot of resources. And to be faithful... You don't have to have a lot of ability. You just have to have what we call stick to When Jesus told the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he said the master gave one servant five talents, one servant two talents, and one servant one talent. And when he returned, he said to the one with five talents, well done, good and faithful servant. He said the same thing to the one with two talents. Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, they had different abilities and they had different resources, but they had equal faithfulness. Because faithfulness is not a measure of your ability. It's a measure of your dependability. Now, if you've been with us as we're going through this series on the fruit of the Spirit which has really grown out of James chapter 1 with the idea of we're to be different in this world, and the way we're, we're to be different is in our character, which is expressing the fruit of the Spirit, you have noted that every area of fruit has been associated with God as our example. So if you want to see each aspect of fruit or the fruit of the Spirit, you simply have to look at God. And that's no different with faithfulness. No matter where you find yourself this morning, God is faithful. If you're here as an unbeliever and you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you are observing, you are watching, you are thinking about it, you're analyzing it, but you are so far resistant to surrendering your life. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but you're struggling, and you're saying, I don't know if I can make it to the finish line. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is He who calls you, and He will bring it to pass. If you're here this morning and you're suffering, you're going through trials, there's pain in your life. You don't know if you're going to make it through those trials. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Maybe you're here and you're battling temptation. And you say, I don't know if I can handle it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, Dan, I've already given in to the temptation. And I've fallen into sin. What do I do? 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whether you are in need of salvation, strength to endure, comfort in suffering, victory over temptation, or forgiveness, God is faithful. In fact, God is so faithful that that is one of Jesus' names. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Faithful is Jesus' name. That's his identity. He is consistently doing his duty until his duty is done. And since, his, since most of his promises to you and me are eternal, guess what? His duty is never going to be done. He is faithful. He's going to continue to do what he promised to do for you forever. No wonder we hear Jeremiah saying this in Lamentations chapter 3. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful, and he wants to develop in your life and my life that faithfulness as a fruit of his spirit. So let me ask you to take a little inventory as we begin today. Are you faithful? Are you dependable? Are you consistently doing your duty until your duty is done? To help you answer that, I want to point out eight areas where you are called to be faithful. This is a kind of checklist of your faithfulness. Number one is your walk. Your walk. The most common word used in the New Testament to describe the Christian life is walk. In fact, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, it's in verses 22 and 23. Right before that in verse 16, and right after that in verse 25, we are told to walk in the Spirit. The Christian life is a walk. Now, I find that interesting. God doesn't call it a run or a jump. He doesn't tell you to fly. He doesn't tell you to skip. He doesn't tell you to dance. He tells you to walk. What is walk? It's consistently moving one step after another. It is a consistent progression of moving forward. It is really the picture of faithfulness. 
And I looked up this word walk in the New Testament. I looked at every use of the word walk in the New Testament. And I grouped them into three characteristics of a faithful walk. Number one is it's personal. We're to walk in the Spirit. The Bible tells us, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So it's a walk in the Spirit. It's a walk in Jesus. It is a personal walk that involves your relationship with Him. And to be faithful in that walk, you need to be spending time with Him. I don't know about you, I wake up every morning and I get in prayer and I get the Word of God open. Because I want that day to be the day that I walk in the Spirit. That I walk in Jesus. And the only way I do that is by faithfully interacting with Him. It's personal. Second, I would say it's directional. The Bible says you're to walk not as the Gentiles or not the way the world walks or not the way you used to walk. But it says you are to walk in newness of life. You are to walk honestly. You are to walk by faith. You are to walk worthy. You are to walk in the light. You are to walk in love. You are to walk in wisdom. You are to walk in the truth. So it's a directional walk. We come off the broad road and we get on that narrow road. And it's a directional walk. And when you walk that way, you are walking in contrast to this world. The Bible says, do not be conformed to the world. So the world is going the opposite way that you're going. So it's a personal walk with the Lord, but it's directional. It's going the opposite way that this world is telling you to go. So it's personal, it's directional. Thirdly, it's relational. When you look up these exhortations, it's interesting. They tell us, we should walk and let us walk. You see, it's not a solo walk. It's a walk we do together. It's a walk that we do arm in arm. So if you want to draw a picture of our walk, it's personal. Because I'm holding one hand in his hand. It's relational because I've locked arms with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's directional because I'm going the opposite way that this world is telling me to go. That is a faithful walk. Now in honesty today, if you describe your Christian life where you're at right now, what would you say is the picture of that? Say, well, I'm just sitting in the middle of the road. Or I'm drifting along with the world. The faithful walk is a personal walk with Jesus Christ. Locking arms with your brothers together and moving in the direction that God has called you, which is opposite to this world. Second on the checklist is your work. First is your walk, second is your work. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. That means you are to work hard whether your boss is around or not. That means you're to show up on time. That means you're to do an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. Think about your work setting. Let me tell you something that may surprise you. 
The most spiritual thing you can do at your job is work. Because the Bible says you're not just working for your boss, you're working for the Lord, and you're to be faithful in your work. That not only applies to your work situation, it applies also also to your work for God because we are servants of God. The Bible calls us stewards. We are responsible to take what He has given us and manage that in a faithful way. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. You are a steward, and the, the thing that God is looking for in your life is faithfulness. God has given you physical blessings. He has given you spiritual blessings. He has given you spiritual gifts. The question is, are you faithful with those? Some of you are sitting here today and say, you know, I used to lead a small group. I used to teach in the children's ministry. I used to be involved with the youth. I used to volunteer to work behind the scenes. Well, what happened? You see, if you used to do it, and you're no longer doing anything, you're not being faithful. You remember what Jesus did to the servant who took his one talent and buried it in the ground? Jesus took it away. Which gives us an important principle in this area. In God's economy, you either use it or lose it. And we use it by faithfully working for God. Third area on the checklist is your wealth. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus made a great statement. He said, he who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. He who is faithful in a little will be faithful in a lot. Now, if you look at the context of that statement, Jesus was talking about money. If you're going to be faithful with a lot, you have to first be faithful with a little. Heard about a little guy who came up to a big guy. I mean a big guy, 6'8", 300 plus. He said, you know, if I was as big as you, you know what I'd do? Big guy said, what? He said, well, if I was as big as you, I'd go out in the woods and I'd find the biggest bear I could find and I would wrestle him to the ground. Big guy looked at the little guy and he said, you know what? There are a lot of little bears out in the woods. You say, if I had a million dollars, I would use it this way to serve God. I would use it this way in the church. I would give it over here. If I had a million dollars, you ever play that game? If I had a million dollars, this is what I'd do with it to really accomplish things for God's kingdom. Let me tell you something. Whatever you're doing with that hundred dollars is exactly what you will do if you get a million dollars. Because Jesus says, if you don't do it with a little, you're not going to do it with a lot. You see, faithfulness begins with little things. 
I came to my wife this week, and I said, honey, tell me the truth. Be honest with me. You won't hurt my feelings. Did you marry me for my looks? And she said, no. I said, well, then why did you marry me? And she said, I married you for your brains. It's the little things that count. I like that. The Bible calls us stewards. A steward ran the estate of a wealthy landowner. He lived in the house. He farmed the land. He managed the property, but he didn't own it. So to be a faithful steward, I think you and I need to understand who we are. We don't own anything. We simply manage it for our boss who is God. So that house you live in is God's. That car you drive, it's God's. Those stocks you invest in, they're God's. That bank account you balance is God's. And the ultimate question he's going to want to know one day is, have you been faithful in managing my stuff that I entrusted you with? In fact, I learned something this week. Because after saying, he who is faithful in very little is faithful in much, Jesus applied it this way in the next verse, Luke 16, 11. He says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? It's interesting. Tells me that the little that he's talking about is our worldly wealth, and the much is true riches, which would be spiritual riches. So Jesus says, if you're faithful with money and material things, then I'll entrust you with real riches, which are spiritual things. Now, I think most Americans have reversed that. Most people think if I'm a good spiritual manager, then God will probably give me some money to handle. You see, Jesus said just the opposite. If you're a good manager of God's money that he's already entrusted you to, then he will give you true riches. See, some of you are sitting here thinking, you know, when I get to be spiritually mature, then I'll give 10% or 12% or 15% to the Lord. When I get spiritually mature, then I'll give. Jesus says just the opposite. He says, give, and you'll become spiritually mature. You see that? The little thing is the stuff. This is temporary stuff. Money is going to, go, going to pass away with this world. He gives you the stuff, and he says, if you can handle the stuff faithfully, then I'll give you spiritual blessings. And what do we do? We grab the stuff, and we hang on to it like it's forever. That's not being faithful. So the principle is... We need to give first. In fact, just try this. 
You may be sitting here today. You may be what you consider backslidden. You may be lethargic in your Christian life. You may be lukewarm right now. My challenge to you would be to give and let God develop spiritual maturity in you. God really makes that challenge in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Bring the tithes and see if I will not throw open the windows of heaven and pour out for you so much blessing, that's true riches, that there will not be room enough to receive it. Give your physical stuff, which is really the antidote to materialism and selfishness, release that stuff. That's why Jesus said to the rich ruler, give everything you got and then come follow me because you've got an idol in your life. Let go of those things and God will start giving you true blessings in your life. So the question is, are you faithful with your wealth? Faithfulness doesn't wait till you have more. Faithfulness starts with what you've got. How you doing? Fourth area on the checklist is your worship. Hebrews 10.25 says we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We gather together to worship. We gather together to encourage each other in that faithful walk. We gather together because together we are the body of Christ and we need each other. I need you. You need me. So we gather together. The question is, are you faithful in gathering together? My wife and I were just in Mexico. We were kind of surprised. We got to Mexico and we saw Walmart, Sam's. We went in Sam's, used our Sam's card, walked around and looked at stuff in Spanish, in Sam's, see what they buy. Walk down the street, there's McDonald's, there's Starbucks, there's Subway. We made a commitment we weren't going to buy from any American place. We were going to stick to tacos, Mexican restaurants. But it was very evident that America exports everything. But fortunately, there's something that America hasn't been successful at exporting, and that is uncommitted Christians. It may surprise you to know that the 25 largest churches in the world are not in North America. Most countries don't know that concept of uncommitted Christians because a lot of countries pay a price to take that name. And to take that name involves commitment. Even in our church here, we we have far more members than we have people who attend on Sunday morning. In fact, we have less than half of our members who actually show up. How'd you like to join the army and find out it's okay to sleep in. You can kind of show up when you want to. 
know, if the battle gets tough, you can just leave. I wouldn't want to be in a foxhole with a person like that. And yet the Bible tells us we're in a spiritual battle. And a lot of the other soldiers have gone AWOL, absent without love. God calls us to be faithful in worshiping together. Let me ask you a question. What's your standard of faithfulness? If your car starts one out of three times, is that okay? If your newspaper arrives every other day, is that good enough? If your refrigerator stops working for a day or two now and then, do you say, oh well, it works most of the time? If you miss a couple loan payments, does the bank say, that's all right, 10 out of 12 ain't bad? Well, what do you think God considers to be a faithful Christian? If you fail to worship two out of four times a month, you think God says, that's faithful. It's part of what our video is about. Give us more opportunity to say, we're going to come together and worship, and we're going to come together and reach out to other people. I will... I guess our video went viral or whatever. I mean, I've, I've walked around town, people say, I saw your video. <laughs> we came back from Mexico. I hadn't even seen the video. I went to the dentist. The, the lady uh, at the desk said, saw your video. <laughs> my video? She said, my favorite part was you dancing. <laughs> so I was nervous. I went right home to watch the video because the thing you do worst in life, you don't want on a video. I was nervous, went home, watched the video, now I'm embarrassed <laughs> because I've seen the video. But it was interesting, this lady said to me, she said, the video made me realize that a lot of my excuses are lame, and I just want you to know that I'm going to be in church this Sunday at Elmo Baptist. I said, well, that's good, you know. She's not accountable to me, but she's saying, I'm going to be there on Sunday. Are you faithful in your worship? Fifth area is your word. Proverbs 12:22 says, "Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight." God delights in those who speak faithfully. So ask yourself, do people trust me? When I say something, do they know it's accurate? Do they know that I'm not going to spin it and I'm not going to manipulate it to make me sound better or to get my way? God requires faithfulness in your words. Now, what does that mean to be faithful in your words? Well, in Ephesians 4.29, it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. How many? 
None. You say, I've scaled it down to about 5% of my words are unwholesome. That's not faithful. The Bible says no unwholesome word out of your mouth. Jesus said something that was very, is very convicting to me. I don't know about you. One of the most convicting statements he made is in Matthew 12, 36, when he said, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. You ever say something and say, oh, that was careless, I didn't mean that. Jesus says, we will give an account for every careless word. That's the standard of faithfulness. Are you faithful in your words? Can people count on your word? When you say you're going to do something, do they say, that's good enough for me? Someone has said, the weakest handshake ought to be better than the strongest ink on a contract. When you give your word, keep it. In fact, it's interesting. Your word is the only thing that is not worth giving unless you keep it. Are you faithful in your word? Sixth area you're to be faithful in is your witness. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. And he has called us to be faithful witnesses as well. I'm convicted too by what Paul said in Acts 20.26. He said, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why could he say that? Because every time he had the opportunity to be a witness to someone, he took that opportunity. So he said, it's not on me because I didn't tell them. If they don't believe, it's on them because I was a faithful witness. Are you a faithful witness? And if you're not a faithful witness, what is it that hinders your witness the most? I think I can probably answer that. The thing that hinders your witness the most is fear. And I want to show you a verse real quick. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. A, a, a verse that gives you the antidote to fear in witnessing. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Listen to this verse. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, I'm going to give you a seven-point outline for this verse, and you can develop it later. I'm just going to fly through it, but I want to give it to you. Number one is the problem. Verse 15 begins with the word but. Now, why does it begin with a but? Because it's in the context of something he's saying. So go back to verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Peter anticipates that we are going to be intimidated, intimidated by sharing the gospel. So he starts with a but. Now this may be real intimidation or it may be fabricated intimidation. One of the ways we get intimidated is by asking the, the question, what if? 
What if I share the gospel with my neighbor and he doesn't like me anymore? What if he thinks I'm a Jesus freak? What if he actually picks up stones and stones me? What if he asks me a question I can't answer? We get intimidated by, for, of sharing the gospel because we say, what if this is going to happen? So Peter starts with a but, which tells us there's an alternative to fear. That's the problem. Second is the prerequisite. Look at verse 15. He says, sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. If you will take Christ and set him apart as Lord in your life, who does that make you? You're now the servant. If you truly set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, then whose glory are you interested in? You are now interested in his glory, and you're no longer intimidated by somebody who's going to make you look bad. Third, is the preparation. He says, being ready to make a defense or to give an answer. Being ready. Some of you in here, I could probably ask you what the current batting average of every single Cardinal is in the starting lineup, and you could tell me today because you've memorized those statistics. Some of you here could probably tell me most of the lines from a popular movie because you've memorized those lines. Some of you here are in sales, and you have memorized a sales presentation that you present to people. But if I tell you you need to share the gospel with someone, you would say, oh, no, I I couldn't share the gospel. Why not? Because you're not prepared. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, and we haven't taken the time to sit down and say, I need to memorize it. I need to learn it. I need to be prepared so that I can present this amazing message to someone else. If you care, you will prepare. Fourth is the pronouncement. He says to give a defense or to give an answer. At some point, evangelism requires a voice. And you are the voice. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, how are they going to believe if they don't hear and how are they going to hear if they don't have a preacher or literally a proclaimer? And that's you. Fifth is the prospects. Verse 15 says, you're to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So you're to be living different from the world. Not in your list of do's and don'ts, not in your legalism, but in your character. People ought to be coming up to you that see you all the time, maybe at work, maybe at school. They ought to be coming up to you and saying, why are you so patient? Why is it that you don't laugh at filthy jokes? Why is it that you're so crazy in love with your wife? Now, when they ask you that question, you have a choice. You can make it about you or you can make it about Jesus. You can say, well, that's the way my mama raised me. That's just the way I am. Or you can take that opportunity and say, it's because Jesus Christ changed my life. And he's making a difference in me. And I'm so thankful you saw that because I would love to share with you how he could change your life as well. That's your prospects.
And then sixth is the posture. Look at the end of verse 15. Yet with gentleness and reverence. How do we share the gospel with someone? Gently and reverently, lovingly. In another place in 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but instead be kind. I'm not in an argument with someone. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to draw that person in kindness and love to Jesus Christ in repentance. That's the posture. And then finally is the platform. Look at verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Your platform is your lifestyle. Your platform is your faithful walk. Notice in these two verses, he says, your good conscience, your good behavior, and doing what is right over and over and over and over again. You see, your faithful walk becomes the platform for your faithful witness. Which brings us to the seventh thing, and that is your well-beloveds. And yes, I had to stretch to find a W. This is your family and friends. Let me make this real simple. Are you a faithful family member? Husbands, are you faithfully doing your duty until your duty is done? Wives, are you faithful in your family? Parents, are you faithfully doing your duty to your kids and children? Are you faithfully obeying your parents? Let me tell you something. When things are going smoothly in your family, faithfulness comes easy and is often taken for granted. But when your family goes through tough times, Faithfulness is challenging. And faithfulness is one of the most valuable commodities that you can have. Proverbs 25, 19 says, Like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. If you've had a toothache, you know it makes you miserable. If you've had a bad foot, every step brings pain. And the writer of Proverbs is saying that describes how miserable families are when a family member is unfaithful. And that extends to our friends. You can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. And I would say to you this morning that if you go through this life with some real friends, you are a rich person. Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. That verse tells me that friend and faithful are synonyms. A few years ago, a magazine had a contest asking readers to define a friend. Here were the honorable mention entries. A friend is someone who multiplies your joys and divides your sorrows. A friend is someone who understands your silence. But here's the winning entry. A friend is someone who walks in when all the world has walked out. That's a friend. You may be sitting here saying, I want a friend like that. Well, if you want a friend like that, then you need to be a friend like that. 
Proverbs 18.24 says, A friend sticks closer than a brother. The key characteristic of a friend is faithfulness. It's the person who's always going to be there, no matter what happens. And then finally, your wedding vows. And I'm going to save this till next week because it's too important. I'm going to talk next week about how to affair-proof your marriage. If you're married, this is going to apply to you. If you're not married, this is still going to apply to you. And I'm taking a whole Sunday to focus on this because I am losing too many friends to this battle. We need to be faithful in the most important vows we give apart from our vows to Jesus Christ, and that is our marriage vows, our wedding vows. We're going to talk about that next week. More than 200 years ago, this nation saw fit to establish a branch of the armed forces known as the Marines. There you go. They came up with a two-word motto, Semper Fidelis. It's a Latin phrase that means always faithful. A Marine says, I'm not just faithful when it's convenient. I'm not just faithful when it doesn't cost me anything. I'm not just faithful when it's popular. I'm not just faithful when I feel like it. A Marine signs up and says, I am always faithful. Well, let me tell you something. God is looking for a few good men. God is looking for Marines. God is looking for people who say, when it comes to my walk, my work, my wealth, my worship, my word, my witness, my well-beloveds, my wedding vows, I am always faithful. The greatest ability is dependability. And it will be to the faithful servant that Jesus says, well done. Let's stand as we close in praise to the Lord this morning.